Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Laura Ganoza. Laura is a partner in Foley's Miami office with a practice focused on commercial litigation matters as well as IP litigation, including trademark and copyright matters. Laura is also chair of the Miami office's litigation practice, as well as the co-chair of Foley's fashion, apparel, and beauty industry team. In this discussion, we hear Laura talk about growing up in the Miami area, specifically Hialeah, Florida, as a child of Cuban and Chilean immigrants. She discusses her decision to attend the University of Florida for college and NYU for law school. You also will hear her reflect on why it was that she decided not to continue practicing in New York because that is where she began her career. She shares why she decided to move back to Florida and also shares a sort of funny story about how she took the Florida bar exam in secret that her firm at the time didn't know she was doing that. I also get her to talk about her practice and the fact that this hybrid practice she has is a little bit unusual, as generally you won't find partners who do both a healthy mix of commercial litigation and IP-related matters. Towards the end of our discussion, I have Laura talk about her experience being a Hispanic woman partner in big law. She reflects on what it is that she thinks made her successful, how Foley and Lardner supported her, and she also provides advice to other women of color looking to follow her same path. We also have a little bit of a discussion about law firm diversity and inclusion, which as you can imagine is very exciting to me, given that that is my day job at Foley. But we dive into how it is that diverse attorneys can know whether or not a firm is going to be supportive of them. Finally, I get Laura to provide wonderful advice on the importance of understanding that you absolutely deserve to be wherever it is you are. Whether that be in law school or a large law firm, Laura just provides some great, I think, confidence and insight on the importance of truly believing that you deserve to be there. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Laura Ganoza. Laura, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here today. Let's just jump right in with you giving your professional introduction. Well, hi, Alexis. Thank you so much for having me. I am Laura Ginoza. I am an attorney at Foley and Lardner's Miami office. I chair the litigation department in this office, and I'm also the co-chair of Foley's fashion apparel and beauty group, which we call Foley Fab. I don't think I realized that it was called Foley Fab. I'm already learning something new. And I well, and I know we're going to dig into this because, as you mentioned, you chair the litigation group. I also know that you do quite a bit of IP-related things, so I know we will be unpacking that and how that came to be. But before we get there, let's start somewhat at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I am from Brooklyn, New York, Brooklyn in the house, and I grew up, though, in Miami. I came to Miami when I was just two years old, and I've pretty much lived here my whole life except for when I went to college and law school. We're going to talk about all that, but give me more about life growing up in Miami. Um, you know, I don't know. Tell me about like family dynamics or what, what sort of kid was were you? What was it like growing up in Miami? 
Well, I am the child of two immigrants. My mother is from Cuba and my father is from Chile. And they met in the melting pot that is New York City. And uh, my dad was kind of a world traveler and was kind of traveling all over Europe after he left Chile, went to the United States after Europe and met my mom. And they both decided it was just too cold in New York and they wanted to start a life somewhere warmer. And they came down to Miami where there was a you know huge Cuban community at that point. And my mother actually, she her story is interesting too. She wasn't a world traveler. She was really happy being a Cuban girl in school until the you know Fidel Castro regime came in and she basically had to leave the country, leave her parents behind, and then eventually made her way to New York. Her parents eventually followed her. And then she decided, again, let me get back to some weather I'm used to. And they moved down to Miami in, I think, in 1974, 75. Okay. And then tell me about little Laura. <laughs> what was, if I found you at, say, elementary school or middle school, what, what were you into? So little Laura grew up in a working class, very heavily populated Cuban community called Hialeah, Florida. And um, people that are from Miami or from Florida know Hialeah very well. And I think I was kind of a bookworm. I love to read. And that was something that I always used to do. And I think because I read so much, my mother said to me, you need to be a lawyer. It's two reasons. Like you're always arguing your point. And second, you're always reading. So you need to be a lawyer. And this was something kind of I heard throughout my childhood by the way, what did you think of that? I mean, I get that you were only a kid, but did that, were you like, maybe I do? Or are you just kind of like, whatever, mom? I was kind of like, whatever, mom. You know, I'm like, okay, that sounds like a good thing to be. You know, we, like I said, you know, first generation here. It's not like we knew lawyers in our family and, or, you know, friends that were lawyers at that time, nothing like that. So I just thought, okay, sure, I could do that. But initially, that wasn't, you know, my first thing that I thought I was going to do when I went to college. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Say you're in high school, you're figuring out college. What was that process like for you? Well, believe it or not, in high school, I was in a club called, it's the worst name ever. It was FLAP, Future Lawyers and Politicians. It was like a terrible name. That's amazing. Yep. That's a terrible acronym, but that's, a, that's that amazing. terrible? Yes. And so I was in that, that club. So I, you know, I still had it in my mind and, and it was something that I uh, obviously thought would be an interesting thing to do, but I really, you know, didn't know the whole path. So instead, when I decided to go to college, I ended up going to University of Florida so that's still, you know, obviously in Florida, but not so far away. It was also a state school. And I basically had a full ride to University of Florida. And it was kind of important for me, I think, to go to a school like that, just because I didn't want to be like super in debt, even just starting out in just with initially for undergrad, for college, just because I knew what our financial situation was. And it was not going to be that my parents could pay for anything. Even though my dad tried to bribe me to get me to go to University of Miami, which is a private school. He said, if you go to University of Miami, I'll buy you a new car. I was like, dad, you can't afford a new car or University of Miami. So 
I don't know where you're going. Was he trying to keep you close? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because it's kind of a big deal, you know, to go away. It wasn't like they, my parents were used to that, right? I mean, right. Um, growing up, kids kind of stayed with their parents and especially girls. It wasn't, you know, wasn't like girls were leaving to go to college away. So I had a lot of um, people I knew that would stay more local in college, but I thought UF was pretty, it wasn't so far and it was close enough for my mom to, you know, drive up and surprise me sometimes, which was not always fun. How far was the drive? Uh, It's about four, no, about five hours. Okay. So that's still a drive. Okay. I was just making sure it wasn't that like 90 minutes, but five hours she could pop by, but still not all the time. <laughs> oh no, she would pop by unannounced. Yeah. Yeah. That's always fun. So. Just, seeing how her, just seeing how her daughter's doing. And then what was the University of Florida like for you? And then what was your major? And was there another flap organization you could join? No, no. So I was actually a marketing major with a French minor. And I really liked college. I went there with some very good friends. My first year roommate was a, um, you know, one of my best friends that I knew since ninth grade. And then um, after that, another roommate of mine for the rest of my time in college was someone I'd known since fourth grade. So, you know, I, I had a really nice group of friends because a lot of people from my school did go to, from my high school did go to University of Florida. So I knew some people going in. So that was nice. And it was great. I mean, it was, uh, I had a great experience there and I'm a true Blue Gator fan. But after the future lawyers and politicians of America, I didn't see this marketing and French minor thing coming. So what was the, what was the thought process? Is that where, that was where, what you were interested in at the time, I assume? Well, I loved everything French. I thought I'd live in France one day. In fact, if you look at my cell phone today, my screen saver saver is the um, Eiffel Tower. And everyone's like, it's not your son. I'm like, no, I see him every day. I want to see the Eiffel Tower. So yes, I'm, I was obsessed with France and I wanted to learn to speak French. And I thought I'd live there. So French was that minor. And then actually, I actually really liked marketing in the sense of, and I think this is what drew me eventually, and I know we'll get there to trademark work and brand protection work, because I just love the idea of um, consumer demographics and brand loyalty and how companies target their customers and all that kind of notion of consumer engagement and, and loyalty. I just found it really, really interesting. And I actually thought I was going to do that when I finished college, but while walking past the Eiffel Tower, (laughs) like speaking French, you know, doing marketing. But when I graduated, the only the entry level jobs of marketing were all about like cold calling sales jobs. And that's what it was. I mean, I, of course, thought, oh, no, I'm going to get some job doing, you know, demographic research and, you know, working, you know, already in a, in a more um, advanced level. But that's not how it was. And I really didn't want to do that. And I thought, you know, let me go to law school. I, you know, I still have that in the back of my mind. And uh, I thought, you know, I could do it. I could help people. And um I want to give it a shot. So I applied to law school. And when I got into NYU, I remember I could have double majored in French and uh, marketing, but I was taking such a difficult French class at the time that I'm like, 
I'm going to drop that French class because I got into NYU and now I'm just going to be a, a French be minor. A minor. That's really interesting. So could have had the could have had the full double major. I could have, but that class was too hard. How did you decide on NYU? Well, I got into NYU. So I applied to NYU and a bunch of other schools like Columbia and Chicago, actually, and a few more. And it was really between NYU and Columbia. And I just I just wanted to live in New York City. And to this day, I think it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. I feel like every young person, and maybe especially young women who are not from big cities, even though Miami is, is considered a big city, I mean, you cannot compare living in New York City. I think that transformed me in a way that kind of was really it was just really kind of instructive for the rest of my life. That phrase, like that saying, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. I really do think it's true because it's not easy to live there. Yeah, that's how it felt. So what was the transition like? And of course, we have we have so many things to talk about, but I know with all the law students listening, they like to hear, particularly partners at law firms, talk about what they recall about law school, because I'm certain there's some things that you remember that students right now are still struggling with. But what was that transition to law school like for you? Did you enjoy it? Was it hard? Was it easy? It was so hard. And at first, I didn't enjoy it. And at first, to be honest, I didn't think I was cut out for it. You know, I got there and I went a couple of days early early because they had an orientation for people of color which, you know, even back then, that was nice that they were doing that. And so I went a couple of days early, so that was good. But, you know, sitting in those classes and, you know, reading these cases for the first time, it's like a different language when you read cases. And your brain has to analyze them in a different way, certainly much different than marketing and the business classes I was used to. You know, I wasn't a philosophy major, political science. Like, I didn't have that kind of liberal arts background in any way. So um, to me, I found it very difficult to kind of just wrap my brain around that. And then I'll be, you know, I'll be honest too, being a first generation to go to a school like NYU, um, I was like, you know, do I belong here? You know, I was really scared. And also I will say this, I know it sounds silly, but the weather was really um, different for me. I'd never lived in a cold place. And for me, that those, those winter months, like it just started, it got gray in October and it just didn't ever stop being gray. And I remember calling my parents, I think I must've called my dad in, you know, February or something. And I was like, it doesn't, there's no sun. I don't know what to do. There's no sun. I really had that sad. I haven't seen the sun in three months. And, you know, living in Chicago, I still will, we still deal with that here. But I can, I hear what you're saying between, so you did move away from home for college, but you knew people, you had best friends with you. You know, the weather's the same. A lot of people from high school are there. And, you talked about this earlier, but it really sounds like it was transformative, partly because of the challenge of being in a brand new place, um, not so great weather, but with really dense reading and you're doing things that haven't been asked of you before. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm certain it sounds like you maybe had to dig deep that first semester or first year Absolutely. To, to acclimate. Yeah. And I will say, 
especially for the law students that are listening. And I hope that, you know, you're able to, you know, go back to, you know, real life classes and be around people because some of the best friends that I have to this day are from not only law school, but like my first year of law school and your little, you know, section, and then in your little smaller writing class group. And, you know, you really, we leaned on each other to get through it. And, um, you know, some of these people are, you know, best friends today in each other's weddings, attend their kids' bar mitzvahs. And, you know, it's, it's really beautiful to have those people still in my life. It's such great advice. The experience really bonds you. Um, and we won't talk too much about marketing and business development right now. But <laughs> for those those law students thinking way ahead, that's going to be a large part of your professional network. And I think when you do get into the law firm and you're thinking about business development and you're like looking up who's the general counsel of this Fortune 500, okay, you might see that person at a talk one day, but it's probably going to be the person who is in your section of torts. 15 years ago that is now, you know, deputy GC at. So it's just, it's interesting that you should, you would say that. All right. But you do adjust, you make it through law school, you make it in the, you make it in New York city. I feel like I'm cueing every like stereotype about like, like hacking it in the big apple. That was <laughs> me. That was me. I had to learn um, how to hail a cab. There, so how did you figure out practice area interests? how did you get your first job? Basically what, what happened next? So I did the early interview process at NYU. And one of the reasons actually that I picked NYU too was at that time they had a 98% placement rate. And I said to myself, okay, now I am getting student loans. So I need to guarantee myself a job. So I am going to the school with the highest probability of getting me a job. And that was one of the things that NYU did very, very well. So I did the on-campus interview and I interviewed with a bunch of firms and I will be honest, like as a Hispanic woman, um, I was definitely in the minority and I was very well sought after. And so I would have meetings with people from the firm's diversity committee and their, you know, you know, chief diversity officer. And people were really wanting to, you know, kind of court me at the time. And which I thought was so crazy that I was even in these situations. I will never forget the very first law firm I went into and in New York City, it was a downtown law firm. And I walked in and I saw this huge staircase and this amazing view behind it of like, you know, just the New York skyline. Yeah, like Central and Park or something. something <laughs> amazing. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing here? Right. It was really, it was really a big deal. Um, and then, but eventually I ended up going to, um, Freed Frank, Harris Shriver and Jacobson. Mm -hmm. So I ended up staying in New York. I kind of knew I wanted to start out in New York and, and stay there for a little bit, which I did. And I actually summered there. So I was a summer associate, but the funny thing is, remember I told you about France. Mm -hmm. So I thought I was going to go into international law. And I wanted to be like an international corporate lawyer because I thought, of course, then I can, you know, work on these deals and these agreements and like live in France. I'll, you know, always going yep. back to living in France. Yep. So I remember as a summer associate, my, one of my assignments, cause I said that I wanted to do international corporate law. One of my assignments was 
they gave me this case and they're like, oh, great. This case is perfect for you. One of the parties is from Mexico and you have to do this research project and take a look at this provision in this agreement. And I will tell you, Alexis, I mean, that company could have been from Kansas, all that it mattered that it was from Mexico, right? And I thought, oh God, if this is what it's like to be an international <laughs> corporate lawyer, I do not want to be one. Maybe not. Maybe I don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> not at all. And it. so I was like, then I took on a bunch of litigation matters after that. And I said, okay, yeah, this is, I think this is a little more my speed. So again, no living in France. Well, and I'll often, it's a joke, but it's not. I do think that when you look back and you look at what you do practice-wise versus sort of your own intrinsic interest, they tend to line up. So with um, law students trying to figure out a practice area, initially it's always like, oh, I don't know. I want to try everything. But fast forward five or seven years, it'd be like, oh, it was pretty clear that litigation was for me. Or it was pretty clear that transactional. I know for me, it was very clear that I, because I just, I couldn't understand. Like, I just couldn't understand what was happening <laughs> transactionally. I think I maybe have, would understand better now, but at the time. So I can identify with you saying that. Also, it's interesting what you said about international law, because I do run across law students who, like, it sounds great, cross-border things, clients all around the globe. Um, and, you know, we won't spend too much time explaining or unpacking this, but it's really practice group specific. <laughs> it's not so much that, like, I just want to do international things. Right. Right. So um, actually, the episode before yours is with Jaime Guerrero, who is white collar. Yes. You know, on its face, white collar does not scream international. But, you know, he's heavily focused on things happening in Latin America. Right. Right. So he has international practice. So I just, I urge law students to focus more on the practice area than just this general idea of I want to do international things. Absolutely. <laughs> and you right. did that, you knew corporate, but I've just, I've just heard students be like global stuff. How do I do that? I'm like, no, and that's what I thought specific. it was. That's exactly what I thought it was. And then global, that just means one of the parties is not from here. That's really all it means. Yes. Yes. What is the, what is the legal expertise that one is providing to them? That becomes the big, yeah. the big question. Although I have to plug at this point, the, an episode, many episodes ago. So episode 21 with Christopher Swift, who's another well, he's beyond just white collar, but he's in our government enforcement defense investigations. And he has a very interesting international practice. Yes, so he does. You can, if you listen to that episode 21, you can find out specifically what he does. But I'd say he has a particular set of skills is what I will, I will leave it at. But okay, so you're at Freed Frank. What's your practice group that I'm assuming you joined as a litigator? So I joined as a litigator and that was all I was doing. I was involved in like pretty pretty big litigations. Um, so I would, you know, just, you know, first year typical litigator working all the time, never going home. And, and that's kind of how it was. But it's interesting because one of my good friends that I had made over the summer, she was in the IP lit department and did IP work. And she was always like, oh, Laura, why don't you help me with this? I have this trademark case. Can you work on it? And I literally couldn't help her with it, you know, because I was so busy on my commercial litigation cases that were so huge. And I, I just didn't have time to help her. But I remember her contacting me like a few times. Hey, this new matter opened up. Do you think you'll be able to, you know, work on this trademark case? And I just, I never was able to make it work with her. So while I was at Freed Frank, I never really had the opportunity to work on any IP cases. Uh, so it was strictly just, you know, all commercial litigation. 
and very, very large cases, doc reviews, all the kind of stuff, you know, memos, all that kind of fun stuff that you do as a first year associate. Yep, all the hallmarks of the junior litigation associate. So then, that, so what happens? Eventually, we know you're in obviously Miami now. So, so what happens next? How did you come back to Miami? And yeah, just keep going. Tell so us more. So eventually, so I thought I'd say New York a little bit, but I always knew I wanted to come back to Miami. In fact, I was I was studying for the bar as a first year, and unfortunately, Freed Frank did not have a Miami office. So at the time, I didn't even tell anybody that I was studying for the Florida bar. So I'm like working full-time job at Freed Frank, but studying for the bar. And what I did was I would come into the office at like eight o'clock in the morning, which is unheard of in New York. You're right. New York starts late. That's right. (laughs) So I had two hours every morning to myself to study for the bar. And then I took two days off. And I remember that, you know, the bar in Florida is always on a Tuesday, Wednesday. And so I had taken the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off. And I remember being home. I get a call from a woman at Freed Frank saying, oh, Laura, we're looking for someone to help on this very important matter. You have to come in. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't come in. Like, I'm taking the bar. I couldn't really tell them that, you know, that I was taking the bar. So I was able to be like, okay, yeah, I can help you when I, when I come back next week. I have a, you know, I'm going to be going out of town. So I literally remember I went to my flew to Tampa because at that time you could only take the bar in Tampa. So I flew to Tampa on a Monday. I took the bar on Tuesday and Wednesday. And I flew home that night, and I remember on Thursday morning, I was put on a case where I did not go home for like a day and a half because we had this doc review that went on and on and on. And I thought, oh, my God. But I couldn't tell anybody. I'm so tired. And you had just taken the bar exam. I had just taken the Florida bar. Yeah, I find that it's physically grueling. Um, You know, like you, I took the bar quite some time ago, but I think you underestimate the toll it takes on your body while while that's happening. So for you to drive straight into 24 plus hours of doc review is it's really something. But okay, so I'm assuming you, you passed or you eventually passed the Florida bar. <laughs> yeah, I passed. And then I decided to, um, you know, come back to Miami. My sister had just had a baby. And at the time I had a boyfriend who, <laughs> but actually he wanted to move to Miami. And so I just felt like the time was right, you know, just on personally, I'd gotten what I needed out of New York. I had by then been there four years and um, I just missed my family. You know, it was very grueling that year there. Um, I canceled more trips than I could care to remember because I would get an assignment on a Friday afternoon and I couldn't go home to see my family. And, and at some point it just became too much. So it was, it actually worked out great. And I came to Miami and I've been practicing here since 1997. Wow. So it was from Freed Frank straight to Foley? No. Oh, no, not here. So I had a few firms in between. Okay. Um, That's what I thought, but yeah. Yeah, it's always been in Miami. But yeah, so for Freed Frank, I was actually one of the founding lawyers of the office. We opened- In New York? In no Miami. Yeah. Oh, in Miami. Oh, yeah. I did not realize that. Yeah. So when we we opened the Foley Miami office in December of 2007. Okay. And I had been working already with you know the rest of my ten other 
colleagues had opened the office at a prior law firm and we were all working together and Foley wanted a Miami office and we liked each other and wanted to keep working with each other. And so then um, we opened the office here. So now it's going to be 14 years this December wow. that I'm with Foley. And you're ringing some bells for me, actually, because, you know, as you know, I, you know, I'm good friends with Larry Perlman, who's also a partner in Miami. And I remember, so he would have still been an associate mm-hmm. living in Detroit. And I would think he emails or texts me to say, you know, he's like, I really want to move to Miami. Foley's opening a Miami office. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if I could, you know, help them do that. <laughs> Oh, it was great. I remember so, going out to lunch with Larry um, and his family when he was looking to move. And it was pretty early on after yeah. we had been here just a year or two. And it's been it's been great working with him. So that's awesome. Yep. Well, and so it's it's just interesting for me because there's so much there's a number of things we have to cover. But okay. So you start in New York, like you said, you make it, you make it there, you get back, you come back home, you're in a few firms, but you join you joined Foley. So and what what was it like when you first joined Foley helping them start this Miami office? Like what about that opportunity was attractive to you? What did you know about the firm at that point? So what I found really attractive was, like I said, there was a group of us at our prior firm that really liked working with one another and wanted to keep doing so. And what I thought was really was going to work out well was that the culture that we had with our group that was already established was very similar to the Midwest culture that you know we talk about at Foley. And I really liked that. And another thing that I thought was really good and it it worked out was, as I mentioned, you know, in New York, my friend was trying to get me to do trademark work and I never had time to do it. When I moved to my first firm in Miami, similar thing. I ended up sitting next to this uh, woman who was a little more senior than me and she did all the trademark work at the firm at the time. And she had a really huge matter and that she needed to like register a hundred trademarks for a client and she just needed help to do it. So literally because I sat next to her and we got along and we liked each other, she asked me to help her. And that was my first trademark matter. And when I did that, I was like, oh, I love this. So I want to keep doing this. And we'll have, I want to dig in more to your practice because there's, I do some questions in that. I don't want to say it only, but you're one of you who I know has this very hybrid practice between litigation, trademark, other IP. So how how do you balance that? And what is what's the mix right right now for you in terms of you know straight kind of commercial lit versus something more in the IP sphere? Right. Well, it, it's really interesting that I'm able to straddle it this way. And I think it's because I started out doing it so early in my career. So when I moved to Miami, this was one of, you know, I would I probably was practicing two or three years when this opportunity to work on this trademark matter came up. And I was still doing my litigation work, but I really enjoyed this. So I kept doing that. And then I just kind of, you know, continued doing both things. And when I came to Foley, that was something very important to me to continue doing. Um, So even though I'm a member of the litigation department as a primary member, I'm a secondary member of the trademark copyright and advertising group and the IP litigation group. And that was one of the things that I did find so attractive when I came to Foley because they're so well-known in IP. And in fact, I remember when I went to my first trademark conference, I'm very active in a a global international trademark association. And I'm very active with that organization. I've been going for years. And I remember the first year I went to their annual meeting after I had joined Foley, 
so many people were familiar with Foley and like, oh, I work with Foley. I know people with Foley. And, and so it kind of, you know, re, reaffirmed that I made the right decision to the extent that continuing to build this IP practice was important to me. So I would say in terms of the mix, it really depends on which day you get me. Some days I'm like just litigating and that's all that I'm doing and they're commercial cases and they're nothing to do with anything related to IP. And then I have other days where I'm, you know, have five different matters that I'm working with to counsel clients on trademark matters or enforcement matters. Uh, so it's more on the IP side. And then I love when I get to mix the two and get to work on an IP case. That's interesting. So from what I've learned about trademark, I think people like the trademark lawyers will have a lot or trademark copyright advertising will have a lot of different matters going on at one time, particularly in that counseling, I mean, talk, the counseling way counseling clients, whereas litigation can be very different. And I want to talk in particular with you about fashion and beauty. But before I do that, because normally I would be like, Laura, what's a trademark? But I'm not going to have you break that down because I've had some other members of the trademark copyright advertising group on. So just for listeners, I'll say, if you want to know more specifically about trademark, check out episode 41 with Mark Deliberti. He's actually the chair of our trademark copyright and advertising group. And then also another episode, another one is episode 51 with Jeff Green, who's also a member of that group and who'd wasn't fully for a number of years left and has come back and was formerly a vice chair. So if you want to hear more about trademark specifically, episodes 41 and 51. But Laura, talk to me about the fashion and beauty. I'm sure some people were already like, hold on. Did she say fashion and beauty? <laughs> what is how does that work? What does that mean? What's that mean to have that industry so, focus? You know, the fashion apparel and beauty industry is, you know, a huge industry. And what makes, I think, Foley sets us apart is that the way we handle it is that we have people from all different practice areas able to address any needs for these clients. So yes, I can help them with their, I can help them with their trademarks or copyrights, all the, you know, litigation and enforcement. But then we have folks like Steve Cade, who helps uh, with startups and corporate matters and, um, you know, uh, financing. And so we also have distribution folks like Bobby Howell helps with those kinds of things. We have patent folks that help in the event that, you know, there are some patentable inventions or design patents that they can get. And we have people that help on supply chain. And Christopher Swift is on there too with his government relations work and because there's so much importing and exporting that you do in that industry. So really the way we, I always think of it in my mind is that we have this industry covered from head to toe is what I say, because we really do. We can work with anything, even in our cosmetic side, our FDA folks are so strong in, um, in that department and have such experience that they can help with regulations, labeling, all that stuff. So people around the firm were already doing all that stuff. And then we decided a few years ago, let's make this a national firm team and put all our resources together and, you know, be able to just offer this as a complete service for the industry. Yep. Which makes so much sense. And I know, you know, I imagine a lot of large law firms are starting to have that focus, but I think for students listening or someone interested in Foley to understand that holistic view and what we're trying to give our clients and you start, it starts sounding cliche, but it really is how it needs to work as, you know, a trusted adv advisor, problem solver. We have people who can help across everything you do versus this really 
siloed. Like I'm Laura, only call me with trademarks. Otherwise I have, oh, you have an issue with FDA regulatory. Right. I, I don't know. I couldn't help you. <laughs> you know? so, um, maybe you, you would, you would know exactly who to, to pass them along to for that. Um, and then also I have to ask, are any of those clients based in Paris, Laura? Have you gotten to go to Paris? We have to just talk about Not that. for work yet, unfortunately. <laughs> I've been several times, but you want to hear a funny story, funny quick story. Of course. My first time in Paris was after I graduated high school and my two other friends who were in all my French classes in high school too, we went on a six-week trip to Europe. And Paris was like our base place, right? So we went, we got there to Paris and a friend of mine that went had met um, a, a friend of hers from Paris was expecting us. So he picked us up from the airport and he threw us this big party and we walk into his apartment and Alexis, in all my years in college, I had a huge poster of the Eiffel Tower in my wall in, you know, wherever I lived in college. When we walk into his apartment, he had a huge poster of the Grand Canyon in his house. And I thought to myself, oh my God, this is so interesting. My whole life, all I wanted to do in the world was to get here. You know, my whole life up to, you know, 18 years, I, all I wanted to do in the world was get here. And all he wanted to do was, you know, come to the U.S. So get to it was so yes. funny. But um, yeah, so I've been there a few times. I haven't had to go on a work trip where it gets paid for for me, but um, I will work on that. Yeah. I know, one day, one day. Although I think for any students who listen to this, who may have the opportunity to meet you in interviews, they're going to start dropping all these things about mm -hmm. Paris. Like someone's going to be like, I'll just leave macaroons on her <laughs> desk. Well, see. I will also tell you about a fashion related <laughs> moment that I had in Paris. So of course, while I was there, I had to go see the Christian Louboutin store. And, um, you know, it was like on my list this is what I have to go do. I have to go do this. And I remember the first time I went, it was closed. It had just closed. And I was like, oh my God, I missed it by like five minutes. They said, no, no, no. I'm going back the next day. I'm going back to the Christian Louboutin store. I go to the store and I walk in. I was like, okay, perfect. It's open. I open the door. I walk in. It's the showroom. I mistakenly walked into like the private showroom of Christian Louboutin. I looked around and it was like angels were singing to me of the, all the shoes that I was seeing in front of me. And, and they were like, oh no, you cannot be here. You cannot be here. And they were, you kicked me <laughs> out. But I was like, oh wow, this is a special moment, you know, to see shoes that hadn't even come out yet. It was like this beautiful, perfect moment. So um, yeah, that, that was a highlight of one of the trips for me. That's amazing. All right. Well, we will stop talking about fashion, maybe to some listeners delight and others chagrin, but I want to pivot just a little to talk about, because you've mentioned this a few times, you know, being Hispanic and legal in a large law firm and, you know, and something we initially bonded over when I joined the firm was you reached out, you know, cause I was Foley's new director of diversity and inclusion. And you reached out and said, Hey, you know, a lot of the women of color here, and by the way, listeners, this is pre pandemic. So just to set the scene, you know, we don't necessarily all know each other in a way that we would like to, you know, we have 21 offices across the country, you know, what can we do to start to just get to know each other? Um, because, you know, we have practice groups, we have offices, we do have affinity groups, we have departments, but people are spread out across all of those things. And so something that, you know, really through your guidance, we've set up is a, a monthly call for the women of color at Foley. 
starting with it started with the senior council and the partners just to get a smaller group and now it's it's everyone but i think that's just kind of a perfect thing to share because it is a different experience being and often in large law firms i'll try not to rant i'll stop talking so you can talk but we'll talk about gender we'll talk about race and ethnicity and of course we talk about other categories as well but there's intersectionality there and you don't often talk about the experience of being specifically a woman. Absolutely. Of color. And that's something that, you know, I, I think it it does it, it does make a difference in your practice um, when you're like the only of something in a room all the time. And, you know, in Miami, you know, I could say that in many instances I'm not the only Hispanic person in a room because let's say I live in Miami and you know, we have a very large Hispanic population, but many times I'm still the only woman in the room. Uh, so you still have that. And in most cases though, I am the only woman of color in a room. And, um, I do think that our experience is different. I think that, you know, culturally, especially for Hispanic women, culturally, you know, uh, it's, it's rare to be in this kind of job, you know, honestly, because, you know, you're expected to have other responsibilities and, uh, you know, a mother, wife, you know, all those kinds of things. And none of that goes away. You know, all of those things, all those responsibilities that are expected of you and your culture are still there. You just also have this, you know, you know, high power job all at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think that I, I just thought it was really important to bond with other women in that way. And in a lot of things, you know, you always see, oh, well, you know, women have advanced in X, Y, and Z. And in a lot of cases, it's mostly white women. And it's not yes. women of color that have advanced. And in fact, if you look at the statistics, it's like nothing has happened with them or it's so minuscule that it's not even worth measuring, right? Yes, that yes. you see me nodding. That's that's one of my Correct. pet peeves um, in doing this work is you will see those big headlines, gender progress, and they, all these things about gender, women progressing. And just like you said, maybe they'll drop an asterisk or if you read it closer, it's like, but it's not Hispanic women and it's not black women and it's not Asian women. Um, and so it's really important that we understand the different experiences that people are having. And it's, and it's, it's also hard to talk about in some ways, because that's not to say that, you know, white women don't, you know, they, they, there's not gender parity with that right. group either. Right. So it's not to say we shouldn't have the focus there, but I know I often will talk about that experience and particularly actually talking with clients who are asking for our demographics um, and not just us, but with, you know, asking outside counsel and I'll say, so happy you're asking, so happy you're focused on diversity and inclusion. But just so you know, the way you're asking this wouldn't even let you know if you did right. have a woman of color on your matters because it just says gender and race. Um, and then also, of course, we're, we're recording this during Hispanic Heritage Month. And I think it's important for people to hear, you know, that your your experience as a partner in a large law firm is different, you know, and affected by, you know, all, you know, all these other dynamics. Um, and, you know, obviously at Foley, you've still, you've done amazingly well, but we want to see more people. We exactly. want more Laura's. I mean, I, I want there to be more people like me at the firm, like so many more, you know, I don't want to be the minority in a meeting anymore. You know, that to me is the ultimate goal. And so, and you and I have talked about this so much, diversity and inclusion is, has to be intentional. Like you have to actually mm -hmm. 
do something for another person to move them forward, do something, you know, in a way that you can't just have like these committees. Cause I've been on every diversity committee at every single place that I've ever worked in. You know, I'm always on one of these diversity committees, which is wonderful. It's great, but you have to have that intentionality. And I think that one of the things that I love when I work with you on these things is you see it as a systemic thing that needs to be changed. And that's how you're intentional about it by like, okay, we have to kind of dismantle this thing that's going on. So it, so you don't continue to have the same results. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, and the systems part is so important and I I won't let this devolve fully into just my DNI rant, but um, committees are great. Affinity groups are great. But uh, generally speaking, in large organizations, those are, that's nobody's full-time job, right? That is, and generally those are members of marginalized groups, you know, trying to quote unquote fix diversity wherever they're located. And there's a place for that. There's a role for that. There's relationships that are built. There's all sorts of things, but it has to be embedded within the broader structures of the firm and be a business priority and, you know, priority of leadership, which it very much is at Foley. Um, Because for example, if like you wouldn't farm out other business issues to like a volunteer committee, right? Like it would be someone's job, (laughs) multiple people's job to work on that. And so I just think there's this need to elevate our approach and not view it as like, oh, but just diversity inclusion, I'll find a volunteer to help, help fix that. But Laura, I would also love your reflections on, because, you know, for anybody listening, but particularly, you know, there, there are women of color listening and they're like, okay, so how do I do it? Like, and it's not fair for me to ask you this as we're in our last like five or 10 minutes together, but looking back, like what, what made the difference? What allowed you to become partner or how did you become a partner at Foley when, you know, there are people, some people that look like you, but not a lot, like mentorship or like what, what happened? You have to have people, like I said, that care about you and your career. And, you know, for, I mean, but that the given is that you do a great job, you're a good lawyer and you have all the kind of skills on paper that you need to have. That's kind of a given. So I'm putting that aside. I, I know that I worked really, really hard to do all of those things, but that's not enough, unfortunately. So I was just really lucky that I did have people looking out for me. I w- and I'm going to call one person out because when I was up for partner at Foley, Leslie Smith, who's now the officing managing partner at my office, she called every single member of the management committee to advocate for me. And, you know, I didn't, you know, I never even think to tell her to do that or anything like that. That came from her because, you know, she was invested in my career. And now that I'm at this point in my career, I've made those phone calls to people right? Because I feel like I have an obligation to pay it forward. And that's how, that's how you make the change. And that's how you can really make a difference in someone's life. It's wonderful to write down a a great evaluation, but it's even better to call the practice group leader and just say, listen, I just had this great experience with Alexis. She really shined on this project. And just in case I forget to tell you, you know, when it comes time to the, you know, for the reviews, I just want you to know how excellent I think she is. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the definition really of sponsorship. Um, So for anyone who's curious, you hear the term is mentorship, you hear the term sponsorship. Mentorship would be Leslie saying, you know, Laura, come to my office. Let me tell you the right way to take a deposition or to counsel this client on X. She's mentoring you or she's maybe telling you even how it works at Foley. Sponsorship is her 
her talking about you when you were not in the room. And that is something that I think particularly as junior lawyers you don't understand can actually start happening relatively early in a law firm. Um, also, as junior lawyers, sometimes you think no news is good news. It's like, I haven't gotten much negative feedback, but do you know that people are affirmatively saying positive things about you when you're you're not around? And actually, that goes as you get more senior in your career as well. So I just think that's a fantastic example. And it's hard because I don't want to stress anybody out who thinks they have to do all of these things at once. But you know, this is, to sound cliche, it's definitely a marathon, not a sprint, but those relationships are so key. And I think sometimes when you're underrepresented, it's really easy to kind of keep your head down and not make those relationships. And it's so important what you make that distinction between mentorship and sponsorship. So Leslie's never been a formal mentor of mine in any capacity. Like even at the prior law firm, we worked together. She was never on paper, my formal anything. And yet she did all of this for me. And I feel the same way. I mean, I will reach out to people, especially women of color, my firm, that are not my official anything, but I am invested in their career. I want to make sure that they succeed. I want to make sure that they meet their goals and, and you know, whatever the path it is that they want to the extent I could help. I try to be there for them. And that was another really important reason why I wanted to have this meetup of women of color. I just was so tired of looking at, you know, Zoom meeting galleries that didn't look like me. And it's so great. Yeah, particularly once yeah. the pandemic hit, so right? Like, it's <laughs> it just all beautiful. Zoom. I love those days when we have those meetings. I look forward to those women of color meetings every month. It's like my favorite, you know, meeting. And whenever I have to miss it, I hate it. You know, I, I really try to schedule so much around it so I never miss it. But it's that idea of like, look, we're here for each other and we're going to support each other. And that's really, mm-hmm. it, that was really important to me. And I'm so glad that, the, you know, the firm supported it and you jumped right up and helped me yep. do it. And I'm really thankful that we have that. Yeah. Well, it's important. And I think, you know, regardless of someone's background, you know, quote unquote diverse or not, just having places where you feel, well, one, you feel supported. Two, you feel like you can ask questions, even the questions that you think are, you know, quote unquote dumb questions. But I also get a lot of diverse law students asking me, Alexis, how can I tell if a law firm is going to care about me? How can I tell if they care about diversity and inclusion? And I say, you know, all our websites look the same. Um, We're all going to say the same words. What you need to, and this is this is a testament to what you just said, Laura. What you need to figure out is who's going to support you, who's going to train you, and who's going to support you. And that gets to a lot more than what it says on their yep. diversity page. That gets to culture, the firm. That gets to feedback systems, and it's going to be really hard to tease out, frankly, just during you know a, a couple of callbacks. But that's what you need to care about. I, I don't know if I'd care as much about what it says right. about diversity. Yeah, because anybody, the, uh, people yeah. write all the same things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I don't want to, we could just talk and chit chat about this forever, but I want to start, start bringing it home just a little bit, closing out. And you've already given some really great advice, but perhaps globalizing it even more. What is your advice to somebody who's junior navigating a legal career, either maybe that junior lawyer or a law student? What, what, what advice do you have for them? My advice is something that I wish I had believed more of, but now I have come to really embrace it is that you deserve to be here. If you're in law school, like you got into that law school, you deserve to be there. You know, for me, perhaps it played into the fact that I was Hispanic and I checked that box in my application, 
that's fine, but I'm there and I deserve to be there. And at a law firm too, you know, I got this job. You hired me for a reason. I deserve to be here. And it's, it's hard to do that sometimes. And I think especially with women of color, especially, I will say, we kind of give ourselves such a high bar. Like for us, it's perfection is what we have to be all the time. Because many times we do have to work twice as hard for half as much. So in our minds, we have to be perfect and, and all of that. So we, we put ourselves at this very kind of high standard for ourselves sometimes. And, you know, of course, no one's perfect. And if you fall short, you're going to really question yourself and you can get paralyzed if that happens. So I think you just have to really believe it, it's not even believing in yourself. You're actually believing in other people that believed in you. So if, if you don't even think like believe in yourself, then you're like, well, obviously I really respect these people and they hired me. They must know what they're doing. So that's a hard one, but I think it's really important. And the earlier you realize that, I think the more confident you'll be in your career and the kind of easier it will be regardless, you know, of whatever your circumstances are just because you deserve to be there. I love that so much. And I also think this podcast, this discussion with you, but the other 60 something episodes up to this point shows that because if you, if you listen and I don't expect anyone to listen to all of them, you will hear so such a wide variety of experiences leading up to, you know, practicing at Foley in particular, and all of those experiences serve those people well, you know, and some of them, it was, you know, really, you know, I was a doctor in a former life. For others, it was, I worked in restaurants and I was bartending and they have even more, by the way, client develop client skills mm -hmm. <laughs> than somebody who didn't do that. But I think we're often, we just decide that whatever we bring isn't enough. And that's just, Laura, that's great advice. Hit me, hit me straight in the heart when you said that. Final, final question. People have questions for you. They want to reach out. Can they feel comfortable finding you on Foley's website? And yeah, sending absolutely. You an email? Foley's website. I'm there. I'm also really active in LinkedIn, not as active as Alexis. And I don't even have as close to as many followers. And if you don't follow her, you have to follow her. She's amazing. But yeah, I'm active on LinkedIn. And um, on Instagram, I'm Laura Ganoza, fashion lawyer as well. So there's plenty of ways you can reach out to me. Yep. I did not know about the Instagram handle. I'll have to find that too. But thank you so much for being on the show, Laura. It was wonderful. It was so great to finally do this. And um, I hope to see you in person soon, Alexis. Me too. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.